Coming up, an in-depth discussion with the director of the Showtime docuseries, The Kings, Matt Wycross, as we take a deep dive on the four greatest boxers of the 1980s and how the end of the Carter administration leading into the Reagan era coincided with boxing during a trying time in America. An engaging conversation forthcoming, but first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J-Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to, so your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people, to generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, So then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December. But what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What? is happening my good people greetings how are you how's it going how's everybody doing out there what is the latest and greatest hope everybody's well feeling fantastic and great spirits i sure am as i'm going to deliver a very special guest back-to-back weeks where last week we talked about the mma and ufc this time around we're going to talk about boxing in one of the greatest eras the 1980s and you're going to hear it momentarily as this is the j reels podcast with your host j reels for my first-timers, welcome aboard, and for those who have been banging with me for now 204 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It is a Thursday, July the 15th, already the middle of the month, here in the year of our Lord, 2021. Today, I'm joined with filmmaker Matt Wycross, who directed the wonderful four-part docuseries, The Kings, on Showtime. It did air last month, but not to despair. If you have Showtime on your cable package, it's on demand, or if you're able to stream it on your phone, tablet, TV, etc., All four episodes are available, and it's an easy watch. Very good flow, fantastic storytelling from start to finish about Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Thomas Hearns, and marvelous Marvin Hagler. 
as well as the passing of the torch regarding the leadership of this country at that time. And as I've discussed time after time here on the podcast, I've destroyed boxing from pillar to post over the years. But these days right here, the 1980s, that whole decade, were the halcyon days of a sport where you look forward to watching these fights on pay-per-view or HBO. And I couldn't get enough of taking this trip down memory lane to a time where boxing was at its peak. Also, a little tidbit that I'd like to share. Some of the audio taken from this series, especially the interviews with Marvin Hagler, were from an archive show that yours truly and my old radio partner, JD, had the pleasure of doing many years ago. I'll be sure to post a couple of stills on my Instagram account, whether J Reels or the J Reels podcast, later today detailing that. And all of this was a pleasant surprise knowing that something JD and I worked on many years ago comes to light in a project as enormous as this. So needless to say, it comes full circle and Matt will take us through the whole pre-production, production, what it was like to work on a topic and project that he wasn't too familiar with. All great stuff that I hope you enjoyed as much as I had the honor of having him on the podcast to discuss all of it. Also, I have to thank Heather Merrill, one of the archival producers on the film, and also Prue Arndt, another producer who facilitated this interview with their help. So many thanks to them. Without further ado, let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Matt Wycross, the director of The Kings, and I'll see you on the other side of this interview. On the line, I have the director of The Kings, the docuseries that aired on Showtime over the last four weeks, and have the honor and pleasure to interview him and go through the whole process of how this unfolded. Joining me, Matt Wycross, here on the J Reels Podcast. Matt, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for taking the time out to do this. How are you today? I'm really good. Thank you so much for having me on, Jay. Oh, please. My pleasure. And uh, before we get started... First and foremost, to uh, those who may not be familiar with you, just give us a little background on yourself and as far as your resume building up to doing the Kings here just this past month. Well, it's, it's, I've had quite a varied career, really. So I, I started out working with a director called Michael Winterbottom yes. here in the UK, and we made, made a film called Road to Guantanamo. And then I've done, I've done a lot of music videos with bands like Coldplay and The Stones and... Uh, and so on, and then we, and then I moved into doing drama, and uh, made a few dramas, and then recently I've been doing more documentaries. We did a, a film about the band Supersonic, and mm. another film with Coldplay about their their lives and their career. Um, yeah, and I've been, and then this is something new for me. I haven't really done anything about sport before, certainly not about boxing. Um, so yeah, it was it was new territory. Yes, and I want to actually get into that because considering that you're from the other side of the pond. And knowing that boxing, of course, it's a worldwide sport, as we know. But with these four fighters in particular, really the three, because I know Roberto Duran, obviously from Panama, what attracted you to doing this project? Was there a particular person that got in your ear that said, hey, Matt, this would be a great opportunity? Was this something that fell in your lap? How was that whole process pretty much from the start to where you actually got the job and were able to direct this? Yeah, it's quite an unlikely combination, me and, and the subject matter, just because, you know, I, it, it was kind of, I was a little bit young for this era, and um, and I'm not like a boxing super fan. I, 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 like most people, I watch some of the big fights, but I always felt a little bit conflicted about it. And I and I think that is something about boxing, that it's, it's controversial, you know, it's, it's it has huge fans, but it also has its detractors. So I, we made this film, this Oasis film, Supersonic, uh, probably four or five years ago now. Mm-hmm. and the creative team behind it all wanted to try and find another project and we kept on trying to find something we could do together and then it never quite clicked or the timing wasn't right 
And then James, who was one of the producers on that film, came back to me and he said, like, I've, I've got this idea of something I, I wanted to do for years and years and years. And I think it'd be amazing. Uh, it's about boxing. And immediately I kind of talked myself out of the job. I was like, yeah, but, you know, I don't really know anything about that. And he's like, no, 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 it's fine. It's kind of, you know, first of all, these guys are like the greatest of all time. Like they're up there with Ali. They're up there with Tyson. Mm -hmm. But the story is less known, certainly in countries outside the U.S. And what we want to try and do is do the bigger backdrop the picture of the 80s at the time and and what these not just showing these fights but trying to talk about what the fights meant and and how they captured the imagination of the world and that hooked me and then as soon as i started doing some research i was like yeah i mean these guys are incredible um and then it was a question of going over to showtime and kind of talking to them about what you know our ideas for it and they were amazing to be honest the you know you dream of having broadcasters and financiers like that where you go over and they just say, listen, you guys know what you're doing. You're grown-ups. <laughs> we're around for, you know, if you need introductions to people, then we're around. But otherwise, we'll see you at the other end and, you know, we'll offer comments once you're getting close to being done, which was like it's a dream. That never happens. And the only time they came over at one point just to have a quick look at a cut, Vinny and Steven, and it was very long at that point. It was what they watched a bit of the first episode and it was like two hours long. And at that point we only had three episodes that we were going to have three hours. Mm. And uh, so in each episode, I guess we were going to try and do three fights basically. And they said, well, all our favorite bits aren't really in the ring. It's kind of all the extra stuff where you suddenly go into this whole section on, on, you know, mafia corruption, which we used to in, in, in the early days of the cut or, when you go into the um, the riots and the, or the the uprisings mm -hmm. in the late 60s, so how are you going to keep all that stuff? If you know, and I was like, well, to be honest, I'm probably going to have to cut a lot of it, even though it's my favourite stuff too. And they said, okay, well, we obviously need to give you more time and money. Yeah, <laughs> which I don't think I've ever heard those words come out of any financial I've ever worked with. But they did, you know. And a few weeks later, they talked to the producers and they said, like, we've managed to find you more airtime and, and more money, and, and so we ended up making it four instead of three. So it was it was, it was like a dream, really. That is because you hear all the horror stories about any type of film, whether it's somebody who's uh, doing an independent movie, pretty much budgeting and using their credit cards to finance the project, or even big Hollywood movies where it's like, wait a second, this is going to be another five, ten million on top of that? No way we're going to do that. And here, Showtime, yeah. they pretty much gave you the creative freedom to do whatever you want, however long it's going to take. That must have been not just a breath of fresh air. That must have been an ultimate blast of fresh air. I mean, I can't even fathom. No, it was amazing. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. It's, it's right. <laughs> and you know what I like, too? It's interesting how you started off the very first episode with the end of the Carter administration here in the U.S., 1979 into 1980. And then, of course, that ushered in Reagan. And pretty much talk about that, considering that in your homework and being able to gather all this information about that era... It was the start of not only just Ronald Reagan, but capitalism, everything that had pretty much transpired throughout the 80s, and then the contrast of these four fighters who, okay, Sugar Ray Leonard was in the Olympics, obviously he was starting to make his name, 1980 was pretty much the beginning between him and Duran, and we could obviously go through all the fights, but these guys came up from poverty, these guys were pretty much... Now, I'm not going to say down on their luck, but of course, we're on the opposite end of what Reagan was trying to push and promote there. So tell us how that all unfolded, the combination of the story of the country at that time to these fighters to kick off this docuseries. Well, yeah, I, 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 thanks for saying that, because I, I feel like it was it was the bit we worked hardest on. You know, I feel like, yeah, maybe people who lived through that era know what it was like. But I think it was worth addressing again, because, you know, when two fighters go into the ring, 
that it's not just two fighters. They're carrying the weight of all their upbringing, of their countries, of everything that's going on in the world at that time. You know, really more than any other sport, I feel like. But, you know, boxing is a metaphor for what's going on outside and, and the fight and the struggle that we all go through in life and countries go through against each other and so on. And um, so, yeah, we knew that was a, the, the background story. The social backdrop was something we wanted to talk about for sure. Um, for me, you know, if you look at Ali now with the benefit of hindsight, or even if you look at Tyson, mm -hmm. people kind of have a slightly simplified version of, of who he was, right? He's come to represent something bigger than, than one man. Uh, he, he represents the civil rights struggle, for example. Right. And even though he was, you know, his life was much more complicated than that. And similarly with Tyson, you know, I think there was the kind of the excess of the end of the 80s, you know, that's what he's come to represent. And obviously both of them are simplifications. But I felt, felt like with the four kings, they did represent the 80s in a way, but it was it was complicated. It wasn't like you could just go, oh, yeah, okay, this is what it means. And it allowed us to kind of go from their lives and then try and extrapolate in the way that, you know, how, how do they represent it? What were the 80s about? And, yeah, so I suppose, you know, it was the end of, for us, conveniently, it was the end of one era in terms of politics. It was the end of Carter. It was a kind of kinder form of, of politics as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. And it was the end of Ali. He was on his way out. He represented more, more than just the ring. He represented a struggle. He was there to try, you know, he, he ruined his career, arguably, trying to make things better for other people outside himself. And then on the flip side, you then have Reagan and you've got uh, you know, Tyson on the other end. So this transition for me just felt like, well, okay, that's, that's great for us because you can see that the country's going through turmoil and, uh, and boxing's going through turmoil at the same time. It's a, it's a moment of change. And for me... You know, I think the excesses of the 80s and the excesses of capitalism and the greed is good mentality mm -hmm. is definitely something that is, is like it's familiar to people. But I think telling it through the prism of boxing felt new to me. And I and I feel like, you know, Reagan is he's a polarizing figure around the world. You know, people love him, think he was the greatest thing that ever happened to the US. And they and on the flip side, people say he destroyed the country and, and made it all about money. Mm -hmm. So it was it's definitely all well, this is interesting for a documentarian who's looking to try and tell the story because you know i think the, the great thing about documentaries is you don't necessarily have to make a decision you can talk about things in all their complexity so when you cut when it comes to boxing for example yeah you know i it's mesmerizing the skill with which those guys in and the courage that they show is unbelievable the athleticism is like no other sport as far as i'm concerned but then you only have to look at the damage it does to boxers and you know it can be physical damage it can be mental damage it can you know it can be all kinds of things you know, financial damage. Uh, there are probably more unhappy stories that come out of boxing than happy ones, right? But these four guys were four of the lucky ones to a large extent. Right. So it all that stuff is fascinating for, for a filmmaker. You just go, okay, great. Well, let's roll up our sleeves and try and tell that. And the, the, the trick was to try and make it all feel like one story rather than 20 stories. Right. And we'll certainly get into all four of their stories as uh, we move on with this conversation. Now, with your research... And, of course, with documentaries, you're always trying to uncover the truth and you always want to not only make it entertaining, but when you started doing research on these four fighters, whose story resonated with you the most? Which one that you found was the most compelling? I know they all come from different backgrounds and I'm sure they're all compelling to say the least, but was there one that stuck out more than the other before you started doing this project? Yeah, before I came on board, it's interesting because, you know, you, as you're doing the research... And I did come to it pretty cold. Like, I knew a little bit about each of them, but not a huge amount. Of, you know, probably like most people, I was most familiar with Leonard. But um, yeah, my family background 
is you know they're they're all Argentinian. It's Latin American. So immediately mm-hmm. I had a kind of connection with uh, with Duran. Mm-hmm. But having said that, I mean there's something so compelling about each of them, and they're all so different that it was really the combination which interested me. And even though documentaries and films have been made about them in the past, I think the idea of having them as kind of combination was very interesting. You know, it's a bit like I was joking about it because there's a Duran documentary that got made a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and which is very good. And I, and I remember talking to the team and going, it's okay, like, it's just think about it like, you know, we're making the Avengers and these guys, that's great. If they make <laughs> a separate documentaries, it's only going to help. Right. But yeah, but as far as um, once I started digging into it, I mean, the, the great thing for me was, you know, you're trying to tell things as honestly as you can and you're trying to just gather as much information as you can. And what I really wanted to try and do was show them not as heroes or as villains, but, you know, make them as complicated and complex as, as they were in real life, as everyone is in real life. Mm-hmm. And so what was fun in the edit was like, OK, so we're with, we're with Ray. Ray is the hero. We start off and it's like, well, OK, it's all Sugar Ray Leonard. He's the new Ali. He's good looking. He's charismatic. He's immensely talented. He's our hero. Great. And then you start bringing in the other ones. You're like, oh, hang on. Maybe this guy's interesting. And so I... I love the idea that you could kind of play with people's loyalties and sympathies that you would, you know, as a viewer, you kind of go, okay, I'm, I'm, this, this is my guy. And then you're invested when you go into, into the fights. And then at the end of episode one, suddenly it's like, well, hang on, the hero just lost. That, that doesn't happen. That's not, that's not right. And so now you hang on. So maybe Duran's the hero and then you're off on his adventure. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that was, and, and, and I think everyone has their reasons in life. So even though, some of the things they do along the way, um, maybe you don't sympathize with, then hopefully by the time you've seen all four episodes, you get to understand where they're coming from. Absolutely. And it's interesting you say that about Leonard because here was a guy that obviously in Montreal in 1976 was the golden boy. A lot of people thought that he was going to go on to this big career. And at first, Leonard didn't even want to become a boxer. It was almost as if he was bound to the Olympics, that that was going to be his goal, that boxing wasn't even a part of his future. And despite him growing up in Maryland and obviously not in the best of conditions, but it almost took a while for him to get his career on track because from 1976 to pretty much the big fight with Duran in 80, that's a four-year gap before he really became onto the scene. And when he did burst onto the scene, considering he lost that fight, it seemed like his popularity soared through the roof. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, he's often spoken about Ray Leonard as an overnight success, but it's the same with the band's that I've followed when you know when you're talking about the Stones, you're talking about Coldplay, you're talking about Oasis. Overnight success takes quite a long time in <laughs> practice, oh, yeah. and I think with Leonard, he was um, he was criticised by a lot of people as being some kind of smooth TV personality that you know he didn't have the skills to back up the hype. But actually, you only have to look at him in the ring against uh, you know Tommy Hearns, for example, who mm. was completely undefeated up to that point, mostly demolished his opponents in the first kind of ten seconds of each fight. And, and race went the, not only went the distance, but beat him in the end. And for me, what was interesting, though, is, again, playing with people's perceptions. So it's like we set him up as being this guy who's in the 7-Up commercial and uh, who's, the new, who's the first Michael Jordan who kind of paves the way for Michael Jordan where, you know, people are making more money outside their sport than in the sport. And you go, OK, well, you know, he's, he's, he's a smooth guy, but he, there's no substance. But then as the thing progresses, and, he, and, you know, he gets criticised by the other four kings for for being a white collar guy, for being middle class. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually the reality is he came, he came from a very rough background. They didn't have money. Like you said, he had to, he, he was trying, he wasn't going to go into boxing, but he had to go into boxing to try and pay for his parents' uh, healthcare, all these kinds of issues. But again, you can, I think what was enjoyable for me 
is you can play with those kind of caricatures those simplifications and then gradually you have the four hours to try and tell the story in the round without question and then the, the other thing is too which is the flip side is that these three guys in duran Hagler, and hearns they looked at ray leonard as not to say as a villain but because of all the popularity and obviously all of the success that he had the commercials the attention they looked at him as like wait we should be alongside of him as far as our talent their ability etc but of course besides getting to fight with one another but the bottom line was is that there was a lot of envy amongst those three guys to ray leonard and that was something that of course leonard would look at and say hey this wasn't anything that i brought upon myself It's one of those things where you know leonard became pretty much a superstar overnight like you said even though it wasn't really an overnight success so these three guys he was the bullseye leonard that is to try to attain not only the championships but also the attention and everything else that followed through yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think when you talk about Leonard, the reality is, you know, the Four Kings, would we still be talking about them as a group? And certainly, you know, to this extent and talking about them globally without Leonard, if, say, if it had been Benitez instead of Leonard in that group? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. You know, I think Leonard was the guy who captured the imagination of the planet. And yes, of course, the other three are immensely skilled. They were courageous. They, they had these amazing careers. But I think it's still Leonard who people remember. And it's it's more than just him, him being you know being so attractive and being charismatic and being on TV. I think there was something else about him, you know. And I think the trajectory of his career, you know, you can see the ups and downs that you were talking about. The fact that he he was retired for most of the time of our timeline in the Kings, even though that was when he was in his prime. Mm-hmm. All these things are very compelling. But you know, he was he was someone who practiced at that created that image. You know, it wasn't he was very shy. And he used to practice for interviews. He used to read the dictionary every day to try and uh, broaden his vocabulary and all these kind of things. And he looked at, not only did he study the other boxers to see their vulnerabilities, he studied people like Ali to try and learn the pattern, to try and learn how to be likable. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, he worked just as hard outside the ring as in the ring. And when we look at Duran, of course, there was that first fight, but we know Duran growing up in Panama and talk about uh, being on the other side as far as if you think Sugar Ray Leonard and even Thomas Hearns, Marvin Hagler, if you think they had it bad, you could only imagine how Roberto Duran had it bad. And of course, he had the relationship there with the president and a lot of interesting storylines coming out of not only Panama, but how he became this king after beating Sugar Ray Leonard in the summer of 1980. And then sadly, just a few months later, when they had the rematch, the famous or infamous, however you want to call it, Nomas, that he became hero to villain pretty much in his country. And obviously having to navigate that must have been a very tricky situation for him. Get into how that story unfolded between him, not only just coming up the ranks, but fighting Leonard the first time, having the success, of course, gaining weight and not training to the point where he got to the second fight, quit, and then the aftermath of all that. Yeah, I think the relationship between Leonard and Duran is fascinating to me. I mean, I think that's probably the key relationship. Yes. And, you know, I suppose at the beginning, I mean, there's there's all kinds of anecdotes that, uh, that Duran, that Roberto told us when, when we spent time together in the UK. He came over for the interviews and he he was saying, you know, the first, so some of them are in the, in the show, some of them we didn't have time for. But mm. he said, you know, he was sitting there with his manager at the time watching TV and he just saw Leonard and just didn't like him. And he just, there was something about him, like, first of all, there was the relationship between his country, Panama, and America. 
there was this this you know something that a lot of americans probably don't know about because it's so insignificant to them but the panama canal the construction of that the fact that panama was effectively taken over by the u.s military all these things that duran grew up with and you know he grew up being threatened by u.s soldiers all that aggression and all the expectation of latin america of all the whole of latin america not just his own country when he went into the ring he was carrying all that so his victory at the end of the first fight is unbelievable. I mean, when he comes back, it's like, it's, it's bigger than the, there's a papal visit a few yeah. weeks after the Duran comes back. It's tiny in comparison. You know, this is the site that he came back. He was like a, he's, he's a legend, mm -hmm. much bigger than the, the presidential plane turning up or anything like that. He's bigger than presidents. He's bigger, bigger than Kings. But then the flip side of that, and you see something similar with, with Tommy Hearns, with carrying the weight of Detroit and the expectations of Detroit behind him. Mm -hmm. It has its upside. But obviously, when you when times are good, that's great. And when times are bad or something goes wrong, then it can can be devastating. So then, when it comes to the second fight, Duran by that point is not being looked after probably by uh, Aletta, his manager, or by Don King, his promoter, who are more keen keen on the on the quick buck. I mean, arguably, you know, you can talk to Aletta about this back in the day, and he would have said, no, no, there was plenty of time. Duran was just undisciplined. It was the only. We had to get him into the ring because otherwise he'd have, he'd have ballooned in weight even further. But Duran almost doubled in weight, and then he has to try and lose all the weight. And it's it's crazy, you know. He goes in, he's not prepared for it. And um, and yeah, you can say, I mean, it's partly his fault, uh, but it's also he wasn't really being looked after. And I'm sure people in his entourage weren't really looking out for his interests either. But in any case, he goes into that second fight unprepared. And it's not like it was a disaster. Like, he was holding his own. It wasn't going the way he wanted it. Right. And Leonard had learned a lot of lessons from the first fight and was like, okay, I'm going to dance around him. I'm going to use all the things that I'm using my speed. I'm going to use my, you know, kind of some Ali techniques to try and wind him up and uh, mess with his head. But I'm not going to fight him on his own terms because I'd made that mistake the first time and it didn't go my way. And so he starts playing around and he starts mocking Duran mm -hmm. and Duran for him it's like you know you don't you don't fight like that that's that's not how a fight is is played out and so he he quits in a moment of madness that I think even now you know we spent a lot of time talking about it uh when he came over to to London and I don't know I mean it's, it must be hard for him to go back all those decades but I felt like he when he was talking to us he came as close to giving a, an answer that I really understood. He was just saying, well, look, you know, they ultimately you're going in there. This guy's messing around. He's clowning about it. He's not fighting a proper fight like a real man. These, these are Duran's, these are Duran's words. And it doesn't make any difference to the referees or to, you know, to the referee or to the, the judges, but this is his, what had the way that he thinks. And he's like, well, screw it. I've already been paid. Well, what am I doing here? Well, we'll throw the fight and I'll come back for the third fight and um, get paid again. Yeah. And of course, you know, Seconds after he's he's made that rash decision, then he suddenly realizes he's made a huge mistake, the biggest mistake he ever made in his life, but it's too late. So that's what happened to the second one. But what's what's moving to me is when they do the final fight, you know, in 1989, just before the turn of the, century, of the uh, decade, mm -hmm. the, um, you know, Leonard gives him this third fight, which, you know, has gone down in infamy. A lot of people say it's a you know, terrible fight, certainly the worst fight of the ones that we cover in the series. But there was something quite moving in the way that both men speak about that fight, that it was in some ways a kind of gift to Duran. Duran had massive money problems by that point. He needed the fight. Mm -hmm. Leonard didn't need it in the same way that Duran did. But he kind of gave it to him, maybe feeling like, well, what would happen if our roles were switched? 
So even though the third fight is is terrible, it's kind of symbolic, and 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 for me, it's kind of it's moving just to see what happened. But you know, the relate how the relationship developed from hatred into something akin to love. Right, and it's interesting as it also bookended the decade between the four fighters too, which I found it uh, fascinating from that regard. Now I know sure. you. Now I know you mentioned that uh, you flew Duran over to London to have the face to face. I would also think the same for Ray Leonard, just based on some of his answers. It sounded like that uh, he was in the room. Uh, was that the case too, as well as for Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns? Uh, how was it to sit in the room and sit across from them to get their answers eye to eye, face to face? Well, you know what we so we talked to. It's funny. It's funny because we had the. I've had the same thing on every documentary I've ever done. So. Obviously, as a filmmaker, you want to speak to everyone. Mm-hmm. And but I also understand that I don't have a God-given right to tell anyone's story. You know, you just have to go in and argue your case and say, look, this is the, the film we want to make or the show we want to make. And so um, we were told we were given all kinds of advice by different people about who to approach and when to approach them and in what order to approach them, mm-hmm. just as we have been in the past with musicians. And I said, look, I honestly, I'd feel like it's it's only fair that we go out to everyone at the same time. Let's just tell them, let's be straight. And I, I always feel like, well, hopefully by talking to everyone and, and explaining our motivation, they'll hopefully we'll win the round, we'll be as honest as possible. So initially we contacted Roberto through his family and um, Jackie Callan, who was amazing, came in day one to do an interview with us anyway. And then she said, oh, I can I can talk to Tommy on your behalf. So she connected with Tommy. Mm. When it came to Ray and to Marvin, we were told, look, if one of them does it, the other one won't do it. So oh. <laughs> good, good luck to you. Yeah. And, um, so we, but we contacted them both. Um, we were told that Ray definitely would do it. And so we were looking forward to that. And then Marvin, it was questionable. We went through his lawyer and it was kind of like, yes, maybe, no, maybe not. Um, and I kept on writing letters, but I think we kind of, and I kind of still had in my back pocket thinking, well, maybe at least we can go and show him an almost finished version mm-hmm. and then we'll, and then see what he says. Right. So he can see that, uh, you know, we've got good, good intentions. So, you know, motivation is coming from the right place. Mm-hmm. Then COVID hit. And so we couldn't travel anymore. Wow. Um, and we, I was supposed to, I think we'd already booked our tickets to go and see Ray in LA and Bob Arum. And then we couldn't travel. And then I and then I heard uh, that apparently that he changed his mind and he didn't want to talk to us because uh, I think he now is going to make his own show potentially, or he's going to do, or maybe I don't know whether it's a drama or a documentary. So that was Ray, which was disappointing. But to be honest, it came at a point where we'd almost finished the the show. So I was like, well, we kind of have it, but on the other hand, obviously, I'd love to go over and meet him just for the sake of meeting him. And the same thing with Marvin. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, we heard the news, the terrible news of uh, Marvin's passing. Yes. So it was, um, yeah. And in some ways, you know, the, the show, I mean, not that we changed anything other than adding uh, a tribute to him at the end, but it felt, okay, well, this, in some ways, this the whole show is a tribute to Marvin and his achievement. So that felt, uh, in some ways, it's like, okay, well, look, we've, We've done what we could. It's not like we, you know, we were very, we were very, we were trying to make something that was honest and represented people in, not in the best light, but just in the way the way it was. So I, I hope he would have felt like that we did the right thing by him. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so we, but with uh, Tommy and Roberto, we spent a lot of time, a lot of time with both of them and with people, you know, in their, in, in their families and entourage and so on. So that was good. But um, yeah, you know, you never know. And it's funny because when we met Showtime on day one, they said, look, Ray is wonderful. He will see you anytime, any place. He's, uh, don't, don't worry about that. That's, that's easy. You know, just, so 
uh, he was the most surprising of the four. <laughs> Look at that. You never know. Right. You know, and that, but also, like, I understand. Maybe he's got his own thing going on. That's okay. Yeah. Now, I noticed that uh, throughout the four episodes that even though, like you said, you were across from Roberto Duran, same for Jackie Callan, Tommy Hearns, etc. How come they weren't, obviously their audio was used, but was there a reason in the storytelling process that you did not use the video footage, because I'm sure you probably did shoot on video, uh, of them with the interviews and having them being brought on screen as opposed to just doing the audio track of their answers? Well, it's, it's funny. It's a kind of technique that um, I've gradually developed on things that I've worked on. So on the mm. first film that I did with Michael Winterbottom called, called The Road to Guantanamo, I spent almost a month living with the real guys. And I found that when I set, I'd set up, you know, the purpose was to kind of research the, their, their lives and what happened to them. And so I kind of day one, I set up a video camera and I was like, OK, we're going to do two or three hours a day and then you guys can do whatever you want want to do. And I found like whenever I switched the camera on, everyone clammed up or they became self-conscious or they were worried about how they looked, even though we were never going to show this footage to anyone else. Mm. And then when I switched it off and just ran the audio, everyone was very natural. We forgot that we were doing, we were just talking normally, like, you know, like, like you and I talking now. Right. So it was much more revealing and much more truthful, I think. And, um, and so I, so from, from then on, what I've always tended to do in every documentary is sit and, record audio only initially Interesting. with the proviso that you can come back at the end and shoot if you need it, if the archive doesn't support the, the voices. Because I, I don't know, I always felt like there's... So, I mean, I've used it in different films, but I sometimes find like those... The kind of the video interview can become... It, people can either clam up or they start to perform, or they but they somehow become a little artificial. And then I start asking questions like, where are they? You know, they're in some weird warehouse or they're in a hotel room, you know, whatever. So mm -hmm. it can be very good for emotion. You know, if someone's crying, you're not going to hear it on, uh, you know, on a, on a voice track. But anyway, so so this time around, I said, well, look, let's do audio interviews, knowing that if we need to come back and do Talking Heads, we can, we can do it. But I'm hoping that the archive is good enough that we won't need to, because I feel like it's, it's nicer to be in the moment and not break that. Um, but yeah, so it's, it, but it's very, so we're doing a, a show about the Paralympics at the moment. Oh. And the majority of the footage is being filmed by the Paralympians because we can't travel. Right. But then even when we're, we're there with them or when we're filming remotely, you know, it just seems if it makes sense to see them and talk about their emotions and the highs and the lows. Whereas with the archival stuff, it feels like I kind of want to be there in the moment rather than hopping back and forth to the present to see people in, in the, looking back on that time. And now let's uh, transition to Tommy Hearns because... Obviously, when you fast forward after the two Duran-Leonard fights, we have the epic bout between Sugar Ray Leonard and Tommy Hearns. And that was one that I remember even as a boy because I was 12 years old when that fight took place. And I remember the Sports Illustrated cover. I used to get that as a kid. And for that time, I mean, that was as big as boxing was. And just to know that those two guys went 14 rounds. And that was before they cut it down to 12 because, of course, the fights were 15 rounds who would have thought that even at that stage that that wouldn't even be the best of the fights considering we still have Hagler and Hearns and then of course Hagler Leonard later on but talk about that fight and that was a big spot for Hearns too because as I said earlier these guys are trying to attain 
what Sugar Ray Leonard had already done, whether it's in pop culture, whether it's the fame, celebrity, etc. And now here's Hearn's opportunity to do so. And to an extent that he was actually winning the fight until Leonard took over in those final couple rounds. Yeah, well, I suppose that that fight is less well known, maybe, to a broader audience than, like you said, Hagler Hearns and even um, Leonard Hagler. Mm-hmm. But it, it was for me, it's my favorite fight of the nine that we cover, the nine big ones we cover between the kings in mm-hmm. in the show. In that, it's so it's so hard to predict what's going on. There's so much at stake between Leonard and and Hearns. You know, Leonard is going in there to try and prove that he's got the chops. You know, he's been he's been dismissed by a lot of people. And Hearns is going in there as this guy who's, who's a titan. He he's de- demolishes all his opponents, often within seconds. You know, there's a kind of gag at the beginning of the first episode. It was just like, you know, you do not go and get any refreshments before a Tommy, during a Tommy, yeah. right. Tommy Hearns fight because you will miss the entire fight. It, they last literally 30 seconds, sometimes a minute. So the idea of him going in against Leonard, it just looked like a mismatch to a lot of people. And they were wrong, you know, but it was, but then, then the way that, you know, as, as Howard Cassell talks about it, the ebb and flow of that fight is unbelievable because if, if you go in there thinking one thing, you're going to be proved wrong again and again and again. And just when you think it's over, it swings around again and again. And, even, and, and there's just something about the way the two of them fought because they seem so different. And Leonard seems so small compared to Tommy. Mm-hmm. And there's so much at stake. And Tommy cares so much. I mean, I think that's the thing about him. He, he, is, he, has, he had this kind of formidable physique and, and he towers over his opponents, you know, because he's, he's, he was this, like Jackie said affectionately about him, he was like a freak of nature. He yeah. shouldn't, shouldn't, someone like that shouldn't exist. They can't be that weight and be that big and be that powerful, but he was. So then, but when he loses and it's never happened to him before, he, his world falls apart and he really did feel like he was representing Detroit and he was the, the hope for all these people and a lot of people lost money and probably lost houses mm-hmm. on the back of that fight so um, what I love about Tommy and he's the same even now is that he is, he's a kind of gentle giant he's someone who's very quiet he's a very like a, he was back in the day a very shy kid you know shy, shy kid going into it and, but then he created this persona but the problem is you know if you build up and all your self-esteem and everything is wrapped up in what happens in the ring, then when it goes wrong, your life falls apart. And so he had to kind of build himself up again. So that, but there's, there's so much at stake in that, in that fight. I think that's why it's one of my favorites. Absolutely. And then the other thing is too, just so talk about Hagler now. Now here's a guy born in Newark, moved to Brockton, Mass. And this is almost hard to fathom, but he was pretty much like the underdog in comparison to all these fighters that we've been talking about because he was a guy that really had to work, to be blunt, had to work his ass off just to get to the point where he could even fight, let's say, uh, Roberto Duran, and then next would be Thomas Hearns, and then, of course, to finally get Leonard years later after all those retirements. But Hagel was a guy that it was all about the work. It was all about putting that in. He was relentless in that regard, and he had that bulldog mentality of he's going to do it by any means necessary. And I find that fascinating because just like with Thomas Hearns and Sugar Ray Leonard, of course, you know, the tough upbringings, etc. But this one, to me, resonated a little bit more only because as he's trying to make a name for himself and that fight that he had, I believe, was at Alan Minter, where after the fight, everybody's throwing stuff into the ring. It was almost a microcosm of the start of his career and just to earn the respect in order for him to move up that ladder to achieve that type of success. Let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, Hagler was someone who thought that the system was against him from the beginning. And I think he was probably right. 
you know, for whatever reason, he was he was seen as being not as charismatic, even though he was he was very good looking. He was funny, but he just didn't have the flair of Leonard. You know, no one else did at that point. Mm-hmm. And so he was he was never really seen as being big box office up until very near the end of his career. And so he when 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 he was struggling to even to get a championship uh, bout against anyone, you know, when he finally gets it against Santo Fermo and it goes to it goes to the judges, then it goes against him. And he said at that point, you know, from now on, I'm going to let these be my judges holding up his fists. Yeah. And he never let it go back to the judges until, of course, to that final fight where once again, the system was against him. So, you know, you can people could talk. I mean, there's people who have endlessly spoken about his career and endlessly spoken about those controversial fights. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's not a coincidence. You don't have to be a massive conspiracy theorist just to say, you know, whether you think money was involved and changed hands in, in that sense, or whether you feel like people just didn't like him as much as Leonard and just had sympathy towards Leonard or felt like Hagler was, was going to dominate. So therefore they gave Leonard more credit in that final fight. I don't know, but it, it's, uh, you know, I, I, whoever the, um, whenever you see fights and judges score things that to that extent, you're like, well, hang on, this is, it's just, it's just not fair. Mm. And, um, and I think, and it's interesting that we try to provide different viewpoints in the show, but you know, from my standpoint, again, not as a boxing expert, just feels like, you know, he's dominating so much. Surely the whole point of it, if you're going to, if you're going to take the championship away from someone who's had it that long, you really need to have done some, some damage on them. And that's not what happened in that fight. And then to think with the Hagler Hearns fight, as you well put it in the documentary, that first round, a lot of people are going to think that's the best round of boxing ever. And if there was ever a fight where two opponents were literally looking to knock their opponent's heads off, I mean, this was as vicious. This was a street fight. And just watching it again, it brought me back to as a boy, just watching this and how much I love boxing and the way you portrayed that was excellent. And I'm sure Hagler wanted to prove that point, not only to his counterpart, but also to the world that, hey, he meant business. He belongs with these guys. And he sure did that over the course of three rounds there and that night against Thomas Hearns. Talk about that for a sec. Yeah, I mean, Hagler Hearns is, is infamous now, notorious, whatever you want to call it. It's considered, that first round considered to be one of the greatest rounds in boxing history, if not the greatest, certainly in, in that weight division. Um, I mean, watching it now, it's, it's unbelievable because oh. it's completely, it just doesn't stop. And you can even hear the commentators, you can say, this is still round one. <laughs> yep. through because it, the amount of punches being thrown, I mean, it is all out war. And I mean, again, I, I feel like, you know, when we were talking to the different contributors, they felt like maybe the reason why it meant so much to those fighters and why it was as, as violent and as vicious as it was is because these guys are carrying everything. They're carrying all their history. They're carrying the history of their, their country, but having the, the, the history of their regions, their towns, their cities on their shoulders. And so when they're going in, it's a grudge match. And for me, you know, it's not, you could, you could argue, okay, well, Hagler wants to go in there. He doesn't want to let, um, let Hearns use his reach as a, as a kind of advantage, but it's tough. Like it's kind of, why would they just go at it that way when both fighters might've wanted to kind of, you, you would imagine on paper, they would have probably gone in in there strategically you sound the other person out you feel them out in the first couple of rounds in the way that obviously Hagler does later on with Leonard so it's it's kind of it's counterintuitive but the second the bell rings they're in there and they, mm. they're destroying each other and the fact that Tommy Hearns 
gives like the you know his advantage everyone said from the beginning it's the punch it's the devastating punch and he gives it full force to Hagler in the head and ends up breaking his hand and Hagler keeps on coming it's just it's unbelievable it's like watching you know two gods two titans go yeah. at it against each other and then the fascinating thing is of course we know Hagler wins that fight and then before we get to Hagler and Leonard when Duran fought Hagler and as Duran was coming out of the ring and with Sugar Ray Leonard ringside, I guess he was uh, commentating on the fight. And all Duran does is lead into and says, yeah, you could beat this guy. Considering that Leonard was in and out with the detached retina. And of course, he retired several times. And Duran, as you mentioned, the relationship that he had with him from the very beginning, it was more of a hate, hate. And then it became this very amicable, even almost brotherly, if you want to say, to go as far as that. But knowing that Duran planted that seed in Leonard, I'm sure it probably burned in him for all those years because it's not as if once he told Leonard to say, hey, you could beat this guy, you could box him, and it's not as if the fight took place you know, four months later. It took some time before it got to that point, but I wonder if that was enough for Leonard to think, considering his buddy there told him to say, yes, you could go ahead and beat this guy. What do you think that dynamic was like from Leonard from that point on up until that fight against Hagler there in the mid-'80s? Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because, yeah, like you said, um, Leonard had retired, right? No mm-hmm. one expected him to go back into the ring. But Duran, as another boxer, knows that the hunger is still there. So why else would he go go and kind of go? I don't think he was, say, he was saying it as advice. He wasn't kind of, it wasn't said tongue-in-cheek. He wasn't laughing at him. He was, he was saying, you know, you, I think you've got a shot. Maybe because he just lost to Hagler and he wanted to see someone else beat him. I don't know. No, or maybe because there was more of a connection between Duran and Leonard at that point. I mean, the footage is of them being very, very affectionate at the end of the uh, of the, the fight with Hagler. Yeah, I think that the you know what we try and get into in the final episode is you know what 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 is this grudge between Leonard and Hagler? Well, you know you can keep on going back, and there's so many slights and so many problems between the two. Mm-hmm. You know, Leonard, you know, like we like we talked about, Leonard was the charismatic guy who got the TV airtime who got paid 40 grand for his first fight. And at the same time, you know, Hagler got $40 for his first fight. Yeah. And when it came to the championships on the same night, Hagler is denied his, even though everyone says he won it. And Leonard goes on to superstardom and so on. So there's that. But then there's also the night where Hagler invited him and gave this big speech that made it feel like they were going to have a, a finally going to have this fight and the payday that Hagler had earned for all his life. And then he pulls it away from him. In, in pretty mean there's a kind of mean streak in, in Leonard like there is a lot of boxers you know I don't think you become a champion without it mm-hmm. and so there's that there's that kind of side of it and then there's just the fact that that uh, you know Leonard's had the recognition that Hagler never got in his life you know never or he only started to, to kind of get in the last few fights of his career and so there's that side of him just saying well look I, I can show everyone people think that I'm just a brawler people think that I don't have the skills that Leonard has okay fine well I'm going to fight him on his terms you know the way that Leonard fought Duran on his own terms in the first fight mm. but you know that's that's the problem it's like if you try and fight someone on their own territory it doesn't always work out the way you want yeah and that's the thing what uh, probably hurt Hagler because in those first few rounds here he is we know he's a southpaw and here he is trying to fight unorthodox the other way where I'm sure the judges looked at that and gave a lot of points to Leonard in those first few rounds and then of course that's when Hagler went back to being a southpaw and it's interesting because it reminded me a little bit later on, I don't know if you're familiar with this fight, but when Oscar De La Hoya fought Felix Trinidad, because I thought Trinidad was losing 
on all counts going up into those final rounds. But then, to me, De La Hoya just danced around the ring and pretty much avoided contact, and they gave the decision to Trinidad. So it was almost like the same type of result because of what De La Hoya did for those last few rounds as opposed to what Hagler did in those first few rounds. And then the fascinating thing, just going back to Hagler Leonard, is that, of course, Hagler felt like he was robbed, and you'd have to go back and rewatch it. But one of the judges, I don't know what they scored in 118-111 for Leonard, but Hagler, yeah. then, Hagler then walks away. He figures that that's it. Just like what you mentioned before, that just not getting the respect, that no matter what he did, no matter how hard he fought, it just seemed like it was going to never to be for him down the road, that he had just the wherewithal to get up and leave where the other three guys kept fighting pretty much until the end of the decade and then Duran, obviously, into the 90s as well. So I, I kind of wonder what the foresight was with Hagler. If I don't know if you have any inkling based on some of the people that you spoke with for Hagler just to pick up and leave and never even have an inkling or an itch to come back where the other guys just kept on fighting pretty much until their their last breath. Yeah, well, I think there was integrity to Hagler. And for better or for worse, he was someone who knew what he felt and was going to stick by it. And so that came to his uh, his trainer and manager, you know, Petronelli's. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when he was offered... Bigger money. Uh, I remember this was like another side plot that we used to have in the show. He was offered bigger money for that final fight with Leonard if he ditched the Petronellis and just took the money himself. Right. And he got so angry he wanted to cancel the whole fight. He was someone who was he, he was uh, I think of all our uh, four kings. You know, he was known for his honesty in a in a corrupt business. And but then on the flip side, it meant that he was very extreme. You know, when it, things didn't. Go- his way and he saw that the system in his eyes was set against him he was like okay well i don't want any part of this and walked away and he couldn't be convinced to come back but on the other hand you know he 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 had a from the sounds of things a very good life in italy he went off and became an action star for a little while and you know it sounded like he like like he got it got out while the going was good which is something that most boxers fail to do so you know i, I think it was it was very sad to hear of, of his passing and but then you feel like, well, okay, but he had a, a good retirement. You know, he got out. He still had his health. Right. Um, he still had, you know, he'd, he'd gone out and created a new uh, like life for himself. And I think, you know, one of the things we explore in the final episode is, you know, what is it that makes a champion? Well, we get into that early on. It's like, okay, you need this this secret ingredient that most people don't have. So even if you're if you're Ray Leonard and you're up against Hearns and you've lost everything, you know, you barely have the strength to stand, let alone fight a fearsome opponent who still seems to be absolutely fine by those final rounds you find something deep inside you that says don't give up keep going Mm -hmm. the problem is it's almost like greek tragedy the problem is at the other end of your career when everyone from your family to your friends to your you know trainer to your manager is saying look it's time to call it quits that little voice inside you is still saying no no, i've got one more left in me yeah and no one can convince you otherwise you know and i think you only have to look there's lots of careers you can use as examples people going on too long and, and i think tommy for my money, when we were talking to Jackie, it was like, well, you know, I think it's someone who went on too long and it ended up damaging the way he speaks, for example. Mm-hmm. Like he's still very switched on when he, when he speaks, it's just, but it's hard sometimes to understand what he's saying. Right. So, and you can see that in plenty of other people, um, arguably Ali and so on. Mm-hmm. So that's, that was was interesting, but I think with Hagler was the one, maybe it was just bitterness that he quit, but, you know, good for him that he did. Without question. And interestingly enough, since you were in the room with both Roberto Duran, Tommy Hearns, and I don't know, maybe just based on words that you received from the production and everybody that you were in contact with, what are the status of these guys here in 2021? How are they doing? How are their healths? Are they financially 
I'm not going to maybe say well off, but are they doing fine? Because obviously this has been more than a generation since these guys have been in the spotlight or have been, let's say, even relevant for that matter. Uh, how are these guys doing here more than 20 years after their last fight? Well, I got to hang out with Roberto and, and Tommy. They both seem really well. You know, they're both very switched on. They've, they're great raconteurs. Mm. Um, Roberto is someone who, you know, he's larger than life. So when yeah. hanging out with him, I mean, he came over with his family and he, he was walking with difficulty um, mm. because he, you know, he had this near fatal car collision in Argentina when he was with his son. That's the only reason he finished fighting as he'd probably still be fighting today. <laughs> and I remember reading about it and his wife was saying to me, you know, he, he's refused to have any kind of therapy, any operations afterwards. He's I'm fine. But obviously it's finally catching up with him now, 10 mm. years later. And he, um, uh, he was, you know, he used me as a kind of a human crutch to get mm. about London. And he's, he was due to have a hip operation when he went back. But I think he's, he was fine. I mean, he, he got COVID. He seemed to survive that. He, was, he was, <clears throat> seems to be all right. But he's someone who is just feels, seems filled with so much joy for life. Like he's, there's no bitterness or regret about the past. You know, he talks about some of the highs with the same, in the same breath as the lows. And it's like, he seems to be very accepting of everything which was great to see. Um, mm. Tommy, I, I mean, as far as I understand, you know, I know he's publicly had financial difficulties. I don't know where he's at at the moment. And most of those seem to stem just from being far too generous. You know, he's very, he's got a very generous heart from what all his friends say. Mm. And he would literally give you the shirt off his back if you asked him, which is, which is amazing, but it also, it's not no way to, to structure your finances, unfortunately. So, I don't know where he's at now, but he was, um, yeah, he was fantastic. We went on his radio show when we were in Detroit as well, and he invited us on, and he's incredibly generous and warm, and we went out for dinner that night, the final night we were in Detroit. So he's, they're both very sweet men. Like, it was a real privilege to spend time with them. I have a couple of quickies for you before I let you go. Uh, one, sure. was there a person that you were hoping to get to interview, but for whatever reason, just the timing or scheduling didn't make it uh, – yeah, obviously it didn't execute or you weren't able to get them uh, on camera or in front of a microphone. Was there one person in particular or several people for that matter? Yeah, we got everyone who we asked uh, took part in, in the show. So that was amazing with the exception of Marvin and Ray. Right. And yeah, it was disappointing. But I mean, it's, you know, I, at one point I was like, well, what happens if we don't get anyone? And we, we had to start off the project with the understanding, okay, look, there's enough great archive out there that we can tell the story without doing any interviews in the present day right and then you so that's that's the kind of attitude starting out and then you go well everything's a bonus but um yeah it's uh it's funny because i've had that on every single project there's always one person who gets away we had it on the on the oasis one mm. had it on a couple others and it's like well you know like i said at the beginning you know i don't have any god-given rights to tell anyone's story and this there's they're well within their rights to say look not this time or i want to talk to someone else or, i don't want to talk to anyone right so um, I always feel like it's a massive privilege to get to, to make these shows. And when anyone agrees to take part, I'm always like bowled over with uh, gratitude. Yeah, no, of course. And I have an interesting one for you. So let's say you're in a bar and a couple of guys, let's say there's a little bit of a scuffle and there's a couple of guys that are next to you and they look like they're going to get ready to square off with you. If you could have any one of the four guys that were documented into the film to step outside and know that it's going to be a brawl, which one of those four guys would you have in your corner? Oh, wow, that's a good question. Well, 
I guess it all depends on whether you're talking about present day or back then. Because if you're talking oh, well. about present day, I think of the four, the, the guy looks after himself seems to be Ray Leonard. Ray Leonard doesn't seem to have aged a day since his first fight. No, of course. Incredible. And I think he, he looks after himself. So I'd have to say in the present day, it would definitely be Ray. Right. Back then, yes. that's a good question. I would say if it's a, if it's a street fight, you're looking at Duran. Because Duran is the ultimate street fighter. And I mm. think... You hear about some of the the feats that he accomplished in in uh, back in um, in Panama, and if even half of them are true, he must have been one of the most ferocious people on the planet. Yes. I certainly wouldn't want to meet him in a in a dark alley. There was one time he was he was describing some street fight he'd had where he had took on five other men and knocked them all out, but he broke his hand, so he. He went over and while they while the guy was wrapping his thing, he he said, "No, I'm I'm so drunk, I don't need any anaesthetic." So they kind of fixed it, fixed it up. Wow. Without anaesthetic, so I, I think he's um yeah, I think Duran would probably be the the guy you'd want on your on your side if you can get into a street rock. And one last one. This one is a little bit off topic because I know in the film that you did, the Road to Guantanamo, you worked with a young actor at the time. I believe it was his first role in a one Riz Ahmed. And right. he, of course, just recently was nominated for Best Actor in the movie The Sound of Metal, which I watched and I loved. And he's obviously a fine actor. What was it like working with him, considering that that was, I believe it was his first role, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so your experience with him and what did you see in him? Did you actually see this type of trajectory for him? Or was this something that was out of the blue and you look and say, oh, geez, wow, I can't believe how big of a star he is. Yeah, well, like it was, it was amazing to meet Riz for that first film. And you're right, that was the first thing he'd ever done straight out of college. Um, he was wonderful. Like he, he came in, we were traveling all the way from UK to Afghanistan, to Pakistan, to Iran. So we filmed in all these unlikely places. And he just, you could immediately could see how talented and ambitious he was. And not only for acting, but he's a great musician mm-hmm. um, and he's a writer and he had uh, he didn't even tell me then. But, you know, he must have had ambitions to direct as well, all of which he's doing now. Right. So, yeah, I mean, whenever you meet someone like that, I had the same feeling when I first met the band Coldplay. It's like I, I can completely see a scenario. If there's any justice in the world, these guys are going to go out and take over the world. Uh-huh. On the flip side, the world isn't always fair. So you go, yeah, there's another there's another version of reality where. Riz is currently working as an accountant for some firm, you know, in the UK. Who, yeah. who knows? But, but yeah, I just I knew he had the talent, he had the chops, and the, and he also had the, you know, I think he had the stamina and the and the and the ambition. You know, he he could kind of see it all ahead of himself. Um, yeah, he was someone. So he's he's still a, a very good friend of mine. I see him from time to time. Oh, nice. And he's someone who is, he's very sweet and very generous in terms of the way that he supported the other guys on the cast because that was something that really struck me about him that. He was the guy who trained as an actor. The others were all, you know, they were non-professional. They all just came to an audition. They were they were signed up from school, and um, and he was very good at kind of getting them through it. And he was he was the the leader of the gang for sure while we were working on that set. But I ended up doing, you know, we've done music videos together and um, and a mixture of different things. And we were always looking for something else to do together. So I, I hope we work together again. Matt, you did a tremendous job, not only on this project, The Kings, which is on Showtime. I believe you could probably get it on demand for those who are subscribers. And not only that, but also an even more tremendous job just spending almost an hour with me detailing everything that took place throughout the production of this wonderful series. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, I really appreciate it. Yes, no, you. yo, you're welcome. Thank you so much. And uh, much success in the future, whatever your next project will be. And in fact, what is your next project? Anything uh, you got cooking in the near future? Yeah, we've been working for a couple of years now on this uh, show about the Paralympics. So oh, yes. We've been following, 
well, originally 70 athletes, and now 10 athletes uh, around the world from places as far afield as Canada, Afghanistan, um, Iraq, uh, Norway, all over the place. And um, and yeah, I mean, it's been it's been amazing. It's been obviously like for everyone on the planet, it's been a very unusual time, and it's had it's not without its obstacles. But we ended up getting these amazing stories of these guys who uh, who filmed themselves for at least about half of what we're what we're putting together. And the rest of the time, we had to find local crews, or I fly wherever I could. Mm. So it's been that's been a real privilege to be a part of. And then we've got like a couple other things that we're starting to work on now. So it's yeah, it's been it's been good. I've been I've been very lucky. Um, you know, this period's been busier than ever. I know that's not the case for a lot of people. Right, but no, uh, that's uh, it's great to hear, and uh, obviously much success with your future endeavors. And once again, thank you so much for taking the time out to share your experience on this project. It was uh, an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much, and we'll keep an eye out for your future projects as well. Thanks so much, Jay. Thank you very much for having me on. Once again, many thanks to Matt Wycross, the director of the Kings Showtime docuseries. I really hope that you went down memory lane the way I did, just having an opportunity to speak to this gentleman, and he was full of information, full of passion. This was a project that, as you heard, he did a lot of music videos, worked with Coldplay, worked with the actor Riz Ahmed. I had to ask him about that considering that he was just recently nominated for an Oscar over the past year. And for him to delve into this particular subject, I'm sure for those who have to be over 45 and maybe even 50 to remember a lot of these fights, especially in the early part of the 80s, this was an absolute treat. And again, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And with that said, people, that will conclude episode 204. As I've said time after time after time, to please subscribe, rate, and review, because what that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast. Everything that I pretty much said at the beginning. But to have a guest like Matt, or even last week, my guy Frank Torado, or any of the other guests that I've had in the past, it's going to help by your participation in throwing me a few stars, writing a review, just putting the word out on this podcast is, as you know, this is an independent operation that I'm doing. It's yours truly. I'm going to continue to trudge on until the wheels fall off or until the good Lord takes me, which I hope is another 2,000 episodes down the road. But with that being said, again, your contribution to that will be immensely grateful and thankful for my part. So if you could do that on whichever platform that you choose to stream or listen to, uh, I thank you again. And if you want to check me out on any of my social media accounts, especially if you want to send a DM, questions, comments, criticism, praise, even an email, you could do so by going to Instagram, JReels or the JReels Podcast, Twitter, JReels1, just the number, Facebook, the JReels Podcast fan page, or the JReels Podcast at gmail.com. I'll be sure to follow up with you when you reach out. If you happen to, I would greatly appreciate it. And then finally, if you want to support this endeavor by any type of contribution that you want to put forth, you could do so at www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy. All that's going to do is facilitate everything that has to do with the website, the production of this podcast, the equipment, just so I can continue to keep plugging away. I'm not going to stop regardless, but with the Patreon account, what that's going to do is be able to continue to raise the level of this production because, as I said, it's a one-man operation. I do it all, write, edit, produce, market, advertise, you name it. So I would sincerely and gratefully 
Thank you for all your support, whether you do or do not. But the point of the matter is, is that I'm just happy that I have this platform to share with everybody. Because in closing, whether you do or do not know, this is in the blood, people. It's in the DNA. I've been doing this for a long time, whether it's here on this podcast or on other platforms. If you just go to the website, you could see pretty much what I've been doing over the last 20 years to build up to this moment. And I'm not going anywhere. Because this is what I love to do, people. When you have the passion and the fire to do something that's in your heart and in your belly, you're going to do it. And just knowing that you guys are out there to support me, this is one of the reasons why I do it. Because whether it's to break down games or to discuss trades, opinions, analysis, the foresight on anything and everything that's happening on the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>